Survivor 46 is here, and so is On Fire, the only official Survivor podcast, and we have a twist this season. The winner of Survivor 45, D. Vyadaris, will be joining us every week. We're going behind the scenes of the biggest moments, the how and the why things happen, and the strategy and analysis you can only get from someone like me, a Survivor winner. Listen to On Fire, the official Survivor podcast, wherever you get your podcast. This episode is brought to you by Paramount Plus. Get in, loser! Mean Girls is now streaming on Paramount Plus. Join Katie Heron as she meets the plastics and Tina Fey's new twist on the modern classic. Get ready for more of the rumors, backstabbing, and jokes you loved from the original movie with some fetch surprises. Rated PG 13. Wear pink and head to ParamountPlus.com to try it free. Think about this you're an immigrant, you've just arrived in a totally new country, and you're trying to get your bearings. You crave a meal that tastes like home. But you don't know how to cook. And even if he had known how to cook, he wouldn't have been able to find the proper ingredients to make Filipino food. Things like fish sauce, coconut milk, even soy sauce were rare in the Florida panhandle. You're listening to Gravy. 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 Stories of the changing American South through the foods we eat. We are a production of the Southern Foodways Alliance, and I'm Tina Antolini. Today, a personal story of food, Florida, and Filipino identity, and the ins and outs of trying to determine what the food of home is, when home has become somewhere new, somewhere Southern. With that story, here's Alexis Diao. Gregorio Elutero Diao sits on the steps of the Denver Capitol building, looking directly at the camera before him, a slightly nervous, thoughtful smile spread across his face. He is a long way from home. It's the mid-1960s, and the civil rights movement is in full force. Though the defining moments of the decade in American history were yet to come, the assassination of Martin Luther King, John F. Kennedy, Woodstock. This is hands down my favorite picture of my grandfather. 60 years later, it has found a home in my bedroom, every bedroom actually since starting college 10 years ago. It has never failed to spark joy and curiosity. I can't tell in the picture what he's thinking or feeling. I think that's what I like about it, because I get to fill in the blanks. He is far from his home in the Philippines, where he grew up surrounded by the Pacific Ocean. It's most likely the farthest he'd ever been from a body of water, even though the engraving behind his legs reads, one mile above sea level. Gregorio, or Lolo, which is grandfather in Filipino, got his master's in agricultural engineering at the University of Illinois Urbana-Champaign. For a time, he left his wife and six kids behind at home. Lolo was what Filipinos call a balakbayan, meaning he returned to the Philippines. He didn't like it, my father once told me. Well, the country he liked fine, but not the racism. My father was the youngest son in a family of six kids and was deeply influenced by Lolo's trip to America. He wanted to do the same. So, like his father, my father came to the States to study. He got both his master's and eventually his PhD in economics from Florida State University in Tallahassee where he settled down. He said he chose the school because he wanted to be near a beach. Unfortunately, Tallahassee is not a beach city. 
It's at least a 30-minute drive away from the Gulf of Mexico, the part of it that's known as Forgotten Florida. And while Alligator Point, Shell Point, and Bald Point are all beautiful, they're not quite the same as the emerald beaches of the Philippines. My dad, who never cries, says he bawled the first night he arrived. And it's funny now, because my father has really taken to the American South. And it's not hard to see why. Filipino culture and Southern culture have a lot in common. The stereotypical Southern hospitality. The willingness to help and accommodate almost to a fault is shared by Filipinos. Friendliness is a hallmark of both cultures. Whether you're in Birmingham or Boracay, it's not uncommon to be asked over and over, where are you from? What are you doing there? How do you like the food? Nosy might be another way to put it. And there's a similarity in environment. The unforgiving sun, the humidity, the fertile soil. And then there's the food. Both Filipinos and Southerners share a deep sense of pride and camaraderie in their food. And there are similarities in what is often associated with the South and Filipino cooking. Heavy, pork-centric, pickled, and the inclusion of the freshest heirloom vegetables available only to places where land is just that rich. Filipino food is not like Chinese or Japanese food. Because of Spanish colonization of the Philippines, it's more akin to Latin food than other Asian cuisines. There's usually rice, white rice, always, a meat dish of some sort that's been simmering in a sauce for hours on the stove, and a fruit or fruit-like thing for dessert. My father arrived in 1982. It was a classic story of a stranger in a strange land. It was a new day in America. But for Clyde Diao, everything was new. To start, he had never done his own laundry, had never driven himself around, and had never cooked for himself. You see, in the Philippines, most educated middle-class families have maids. The maids, or the yayas, are an extension of the family. Sometimes they live in the house, sometimes not. The number of yayas vary from family to family depending on need and affluence, they cook food, clean, tend the garden and the children. Most everyone of a certain socioeconomic background has a yaya, including my parents, their parents, and my brothers and sister, who were born in the Philippines. My father was also part of a larger immigration trend. From the mid-1960s through the 1990s, the U.S. government made it easier for skilled workers from Asia to study and work in America. Skilled workers included engineers, medical professionals like doctors and nurses, and academics like my father. And these skilled workers were ambitious and often at the top of their class. But they were not, for the most part, cooks. Cooking was not part of the curriculum, not part of the culture. Even my father's mother a stout, strong-boned, iron-willed woman from Sikihor, the voodoo islands of the Philippines, known for its witchcraft and perpetually tumultuous waters surrounding the island, she did not teach her children how to cook. But she was serious about food. Family stories describe her as standing over the maid's shoulders, taste-testing each dish through each stage until it was perfect. 
And if it wasn't, she had them start over. She grew her own vegetables, roasted her own coffee in a wok on the stove, baked chiffon cakes with edible pearl decorations. Yet, this woman, who held food in the highest esteem, told her four daughters to stay away from the kitchen. As far as she was concerned, that was not the place for women, at least not in the tradition of my father's family. They were to focus on school. All of her daughters, I know them as the titas or aunts in Filipino, they became medical professionals. Three of them have since moved to the American South. I imagine younger versions of them, masters in the hospital with their small, capable hands, expertly drawing blood and inserting tubes, but throwing them up in frustration when it came to properly cubing an onion or washing dishes. And if my four titas were not allowed in the kitchen, my clumsy and brilliant father was certainly not going to find a home there either, at least not in the Philippines. He would eventually learn his way around a kitchen here in the U.S. He figured out how to make a mean pancit canton, a dried Chinese egg noodle dish with stir-fried meat and vegetables that's similar to chow mein. But he would learn this skill as a grown man who was already a husband, father, and doctoral candidate. There were only a handful of Filipino families in Tallahassee when my father arrived. Most of them FSU students or professors. In preparation for coming to America, Filipino students would write a letter. Yes, a physical letter to another Filipino grad student or professor asking for help in settling there. My godparents, Mila and Manny Pescador, were often on the receiving end of these letters. My godmother, or Ninang, said they were the welcome committee. They would pick up the students, show them their new apartment, and deliver a basket with home goods. Things like toilet paper, rice, and spam, a Filipino favorite echoing the American occupation of the islands between 1898 and 1946. My father moved into what was essentially the launching pad for every international student at FSU. And I think I should say that literally every Asian student I went to school with, had lived at Alumni Village at some point. There weren't many of us, but we all had this in common. Living there was a badge of honor in a way, because the apartment complex was modest at best. My parents would later jokingly call it Cockroach Village or Slumni Village. My dad had had a family by the time he got to the States. My mom and my older brother were still in Manila and would soon join my dad in Florida. In the meantime, though, my hard-working immigrant father had found himself in a strange land. And even if he had known how to cook, he wouldn't have been able to find the proper ingredients to make Filipino food. Things like fish sauce, fermented shrimp paste, or bagaong, coconut milk, even soy sauce were rare in the Florida panhandle. That is a common story for Filipinos who first came to Tallahassee during this wave of skilled immigrants. My mother and brother joined a year later. My mother tells me stories about the family-styled dinners with other students in Alumni Village who didn't know how to cook or have someone to cook for them. Unlike my father's family, in my mother's family, 
cooking was a point of pride. I've seen grown women hosting a dinner party panic about the quality of their food and literally remove hot, homemade dishes from the table when my grandmother showed up. Literally cooked dishes steaming and their plates zooming out of the room. So my mother tells me about cooking the classic college dish, instant ramen for people and making it last by adding mushrooms, eggs, or whatever was available. And though ramen is Japanese, it's as Asian as you could get in Tallahassee back then. My mom had a favorite fish market just a half hour outside of town, which had the cheapest crabs she could find. That would be a fancy feast, of course. Most nights it was ramen or rice and eggs. Corned beef and ham were splurges. She said at one point she was so desperate for coconut milk, she actually grated it herself. And let me tell you, the image of my city slicker mother, coconut in hand, hunched over a grater, is unbelievable. There were only two places you could buy soy sauce in the Florida capital back then. One was from Lucy Ho's restaurant. Lucy Ho is a legend in Tallahassee. She's been there since the late 1960s and opened the first Chinese restaurant in the city. Inside of the restaurant, there was a little store with some Asian goods, mostly Chinese, soy sauce, and rice, of course. The other store was Oriental Bazaar, the first Asian market in the city. It was a small operation on the college side of town started by Alex and Ami Cardona in 1976, a place where one could buy some basic Asian groceries, martial arts equipment, and most importantly, it was a meeting spot for Filipinos. It had shuttered by the time my family had come to the States, but for a period, they had saved locals the effort of traveling elsewhere for ingredients. Trips that I came to know very well. I have vivid memories of driving for hours to get the right ingredients. The closest Filipino food store was in Jacksonville, more than two hours away. We would make a day trip of it, fill up on sinigang, a tamarind-based soup with vegetables and some kind of meat, dinaguan, a pork stew infamous for its use of fresh pig blood, halo-halo, meaning mix-mix, a coconut and condensed milk dessert with shaved ice, jellied fruits and beans, shrimp-flavored chips, ube ice cream, a sweet custard made from purple potatoes, and, of course, at least one 20-pound bag of rice. My mom would purchase candies from her childhood. Pastilles, a soft milk candy coated in sugar, and some baluk, tamarind candy that stuck to the top of your mouth, tasting at first tart and then sweet. We would buy enough to bring back, store, and sustain us until our next trip. My mom lived for these trips. We would go to every Filipino store we knew of in the city and stock up on hard-to-find ingredients. Coconut vinegar, rice noodles, Filipino fish sauce. I was indifferent during these trips, at best. It was a good excuse to listen to my Walkman and dress up. Jacksonville is a big city, after all. I still cringe at the memory of my sparkle jeans, colored eyeliner, and Destiny's Child-inspired dance moves in the backseat. And we weren't alone in our food excursions. Most everyone in the Filipino community did this. Go to Jacksonville or Atlanta, which is four hours away, 
to pick up food and ingredients and bring back enough to last until the next trip. It was not only common, but in some ways necessary. In retrospect, I didn't see these trips for what they were. A chance for my mother to reconnect with her home and a chance to show my brother and I what home tasted like. The closest thing short of actually going to the Philippines. Coming up, juggling two identities, the Filipino one and the Southern one, and figuring out how they might come together on the plate. That's ahead. There is the donor music. For the third consecutive year, Fishers at Orange Beach Marina is hosting their Southern Grace Dinner Series this May through August. James Beard Awards semi-finalist chef Bill Briand has invited a host of guest chefs to Fishers for these special events which benefit the Southern Foodways Alliance. They showcase the best of Alabama Gulf seafood. You won't want to miss a single meal, but if you must choose, visit fishersobm.com to see the full Southern Grace calendar and purchase tickets. Highlights include some of the South's top restaurant talent and SFA member chefs. Frank Stitt of Highlands Bar and Grill in Birmingham, Ryan Pruitt of Pesh in New Orleans, and Bill Smith of Crick's Corner in Chapel Hill, North Carolina. Guests are encouraged to secure reservations early. As of today, only a few tickets are still available for the opening dinner on May 21st with guest chef Nina Compton of Compare Le Pin in New Orleans. Visit fishersobm.com to purchase tickets and support the SFA while you enjoy the Fishers Southern Grace Dinner Series. Hi, it's Melissa. And if you're looking for another great podcast from the South, then you have to check out No Small Endeavor, produced by our friends at Great Feeling Studios and PRX. Each episode, award-winning professor and Nashville native Lee C. Camp merges the worlds of philosophy, theology, the arts, and more to ask the question, how can we live a good life while nourishing the soul? Plus, it's the only show I know that features everyone from legendary actor and filmmaker Rob Reiner to Southern activist and author Anthony Ray Hinton. So go ahead, follow No Small Endeavor on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts, and tell them Gravy said hey. Does Monday at the office feel like a storm? Not with Microsoft Copilot. That feeling when Copilot gets everyone up to speed instantly? It's sunny again. When Copilot simplifies complex data so your teams can act, that sun's shining on a beach. And when Copilot uncovers hidden insights, you're on that beach with your people and you find buried treasure. That's Microsoft Copilot. Learn more at Microsoft.com slash AI for all. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. And now, back to Alexis Diao. By the time I was a kid in the 90s, the Filipino community had grown considerably. Our entire Filipino identity revolved around food. And when I say that, I mean we would eat. We had and still have these enormous get-togethers at people's houses where we eat all day. 
Sometimes we would go from house to house to eat again. And that's what I associated with being Filipino. Food, laughter, lots of people, the smell of garlic, fish, and rice, mingling with the chatter of old friends in Tagalog or Bisaya. There were fewer than 20 families then, and we would spend many weekends together, eating crabs at St. George Island, celebrating someone's birthday with plateful after plateful of good luck noodles, pandasal, a sweetbread, adobo, menudo. I didn't realize at the time that these massive feats were the product of a lot of prep or driving. This was home. It was a world away from worlds. In elementary school, I was introduced to collard greens and cornbread, fried chicken, sloppy joe's lasagna, spaghetti with meatballs instead of Filipino style with hot dogs. We had things that we definitely did not have at home. On the weekends, instead of pancakes, we would have rice, eggs, and fried spam and eat it with our hands. I was constantly straddling two worlds. The world of my parents' community and their efforts to bring me up Filipino-ish, and that of the American South. I consider myself a product of both worlds. I am the daughter of immigrants, and I am also a daughter of the American South. The latter wasn't always clear to me, because I looked different, ate different food. And as much as I love the South, there is still the nasty thing of racism. Growing up, I know that my Filipino peers and I had our fair share of ignorant questions directed toward us. I remember telling kids and adults, No, I can't read the Asian characters on the tag of your t-shirt. Or your Chinese symbol tattoo. Chink is not cool to say. It's not even accurate. No, my parents don't own a nail salon or Quickie Mart. We don't eat dog. And yes, I can see as much as you, even though my eyes are shaped squinty. Fielding these questions became second nature. Racial ignorance like this gives the South a bad rap. But to be fair, people would often ask these things in earnest. They were legitimately curious. There were so few Asians around. Telling people about these incidents now, sometimes I'm asked how I can excuse behavior that they see as blatantly rude or hurtful. And I tell them that I don't. Not everyone is blessed to grow up in a culturally diverse community, and that getting upset every time doesn't help anyone. People ask me how I can call myself a Southerner when I am Asian. Why associate with a place that contains this racism? Why claim it? And I'll tell you, I love the South, and I am proud to have grown up there. I make a mean shrimp and grits recipe courtesy of Crick's Corner in Chapel Hill. Shot my first gun before puberty. Can identify pigweed, the nasty plant that's the bane of cotton growers in South Georgia and elsewhere by sight, and Florida tea olive by smell. I put a healthy dose of vinegar in my collards. I have an educated opinion about whether or not cornbread should be sweet. The sight of Spanish moss makes my heart swell. The fleeting sweetness of honeysuckle makes my knees buckle. I take great pride in my identity as a Filipino Southerner. I carry the South in my heart, even though I look Filipino.
But I'm not sure how to explain or impart my identity to my own daughter. I don't live in Tallahassee, but what Southerners call the North and Northerners call the South. I'm a resident of Washington, D.C. Technically, still below the Mason-Dixon line, but not quite Southern. At least not in my mind. Example? Sweet tea is rare. I rest my case. Driving to a Filipino dinner with a few close friends. Note, not the huge fiestas my parents would throw. My daughter asks me point blank. What's Filipino? How do I? Where do I? What? Are you serious? After careful consideration, I say, That's where Mama is from. But I thought you were from Florida. This might take a while figuring out. Like, longer than a car ride. Somehow, without realizing it, I'm in the same position my parents were in. Locationally far from where I grew up, culturally at a loss as to what I should offer my daughter and how to explain Filipino Southerner when you are not in the Philippines or the South, arguably. And I think, at least I hope, that I'm not alone in this struggle. Because as my generation takes the reins and begins to write the legacy for what being Filipino in America is, it's no longer a story of how to fit in or assimilate into American culture. It's about changing what American culture is. My dark skin and black hair are American. The slant in my eyes and my short stature are American. I am the girl next door. Because part of the American experience is making room at the table, even in the South, especially in the South. Let's make space next to the collard greens and cornbread for pig blood stew, jasmine rice, and pickled papaya. And that is the only way I know how to explain this to my daughter, to let the two worlds that I had to straddle find a safe space on our table in our home. Rice and eggs for breakfast, ripe tomato and mayonnaise on white bread for lunch. And for dinner? Who knows? Maybe we'll get crazy and have fried oyster po'boys, pickled papaya and peach cobbler with purple potato ice cream for dessert. Alexis Diao is a radio producer based in Washington, D.C. Music for this episode was by Blue Dot Sessions. Our theme music is by Wendell Patrick. Donor music is by Jazar. Thanks to our managing editor, Sarah Camp Milam, and Gravy's intern, Dana Bialik. And I wanted to add a special thank you to all of you who've been listening since the very beginning. Because we got some good news this past week. Gravy received a James Beard Award for Best Podcast. I got to go to a fancy award ceremony, and I got a medal and everything. Thanks so much for listening and for supporting us along the way. Just ahead, a little taste of the next episode of Gravy. But first... If you visit Florida beaches this summer, take some time to enjoy more than just the sand and the waves. Florida has a wonderful food culture, and the Southern Foodways Alliance has documented a good bit of it. Our oral history projects have shared stories of Tampa devil crabs, Menorcans in St. Augustine, and oystering along Florida's forgotten coast. Films complement these narratives. And you'll find all of it online at southernfoodways.org. 
While you're there, consider becoming a member. Membership dollars support all of the SFA's work, including this podcast. Coming up on the next episode of Gravy, a Louisiana estuary that no one wanted to admit had been polluted by industry. What was going on in those poor communities that were using subsistence fishing to put food on their table? They had no other source of food. They had no money. They'd go out along the estuary and fish, bring it home, and serve it to their family. As a result of that, the health department actually issued an advisory on how to cook contaminated fish. That's next time. You are listening to Gravy. I'm Tina Antolini for the Southern Foodways Alliance. And as you go about your daily life, please remember, make cornbread, not war.